Thank you, Tez. And I think he said I was going to be ordained in city to city. I don't think I signed up for that. So <laughs> I hope it's covered in city church. But anyway, uh, the sermon, okay? Um, so we've been studying the book of Genesis so far this year, and it's been really great. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about that one of the ways that humans tend to react when we've been caught in sin is to blame shift. You guys remember this? And you guys know who, at least we millennials, absolutely love to blame all of our problems on? Our parents. Those boomers, you know. Especially about how because of some traumatic event in the past or the demands of the harsh realities that the previous generation grew up in, they may have developed certain values and certain patterns of behavior, which perhaps was helpful for them to deal with what was going on back then. But then these values were passed down to us, and unfortunately, they turned out to be not as healthy and unhelpful. Simply because things have changed, and we no longer need these values and behaviors that we've inherited to survive and thrive in a situation that we're in now. So... This in no way excuses these unhealthy thoughts of uh, patterns of thoughts and behaviors that we inherited, right? They are still ours, and we are still responsible for them, but this is a common phenomenon. And psychologists refer to this phenomenon as intergenerational trauma. Maybe one poignant example of this that comes from my culture is actually from my clan, you know, my last name that looks like a typo in the announcement there, okay? The Simanjunta clan, right? We have the most famous family feud amongst all the Bataks. Because, if you didn't know, there was actually two kinds of Simanjuntak. There's the original Simanjuntak had two wives, right? A proven recipe for success. And then, over some dispute over the family buffalo, this is the actual story, the son of the first wife killed one of the daughters of the second wife. And then from then on, there is eternal enmity set between the descendants of the first wife and the descendants of the second wife. Such that, even until today, we're not supposed to even associate with each other. Because it is said that whenever a Simanjuntak from both sides are in the same place, like if you're riding a bus together, some calamity might strike and the bus might, you know, get into an accident. And guys, this happened if it did actually happen, like 15 generations ago. But it still affects Simanjun talks like myself today, right? Such that my dad, who watches the services online from time to time, when he found out that we baptized another Simanjun talk last year, baby Zuri, his first question was, what kind of Simanjun talk is she? Because if it happens to be from the other side of the family, you better be careful because something bad might happen. So this trauma that's 15 generations ago has been passed down all the way unto him to the point now whereby to some extent he still determines the relationship that he can have and we can have with someone who is technically family based not on the merit of their character but on which side of the family they're from. Now, you know, this might sound ridiculous to 
know, some of you guys who might be removed from this culture, but in all likelihood, you all will have also inherited in some way trauma from our parents. You know, perhaps by how we've been conditioned to discriminate between people of a certain ethnic group or background. Or we've been taught to be emotionally more reactive about certain issues or disproportionately prioritize certain aspects of our lives such that all other things become less meaningful in light of that. Because that was how our parents were conditioned to survive when they were growing up. You know, does this resonate with anyone? So the way forward towards healing from this unwanted inheritance is through, first of all, owning that we have inherited these thoughts and patterns. And so that we can identify the underlying beliefs behind them in the hopes that we can begin to challenge these beliefs and begin to distance and disconnect ourselves from the ones that are detrimental to us now. And I believe, friends, that all of us actually need to learn how to do this. Because the text that we're studying today actually teaches us that, in fact, there is a sort of intergenerational trauma which we've inherited all the way from the beginning, from Adam and Eve, right? We've been studying the book of Genesis and we've studied how the most traumatic event that's ever happened to humanity just occurred, right? Humanity's fall into sin, which led to this broken world that ended up in their expulsion from God's paradise garden from Eden. And we'll be studying today how this trauma was passed down to their children. The story of after Adam and Eve's failure in the garden, the apple didn't really fall far from the tree. Story of Cain and Abel, Genesis 4, verse 1 to 8. Let's read it together. This is the word of God. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Brothers and sisters, we just read that after the failure of the garden, Adam's offspring, in fact, spiraled deeper into sin, leading to the first murder. And you can observe that in our text, all of this transpired because Cain followed in the footsteps that he inherited from his parents. And there are at least three factors that was a factor in his sin that was also a factor in the garden. Three things that were not only recapitulated, but also escalated in the second generation in the story of Cain 
And the biblical narrative actually teaches us that humans continue to dig themselves more deeply into sin through the continuous repetition of these failures. Okay, so this text helps us to identify them in a way for us to break this cycle. Okay, our three points. Our history of sin leaves a legacy of, one, delusions of grandeur, two, distorted perspectives, and three, defeat to sin. Okay? Delusional, distorted, defeated. That's the legacy Adam and Eve left us in. May we have ears to hear and let the Holy Spirit speak into our hearts today. Point one, our history of sin leaves a legacy of delusions of grandeur. Okay, so let's set the scene here. Adam and Eve trusted in this snake, right? This animal instead of God. And then because of that, God pronounces curses on the world around them, making it much more difficult and painful for them to be fruitful and multiply in this broken world. And then they were expelled from God's paradise garden somewhere to the east, right? We don't know exactly where, but most commentators believe that they didn't go very far. They didn't go all the way to like, you know, Japan or something. Because in verse 16, when Cain was banished for his sin, he went east of Eden. So they were, though they were outside of the garden, they were still most likely still in the general region of Eden, right? But nonetheless, this land of delight, which, by the way, is what the word Eden means, is nowhere near as delightful as when God originally created it to be, as now it bears the curse on the ground because of human sin. However, in these less than ideal circumstances, the humans did not stop from multiplying, and they had two kids. Um, And the name of the first is Cain. Right? And in Hebrew, the word Cain means something like a smith, you know, like someone who makes things, like a blacksmith or something, which is appropriate because later in the chapter, we see that the descendants of Cain was described specifically as people who made stuff. And the name of the second child was Abel, or in Hebrew, Havel. And, you know, Havel means smoke or vapor, which is appropriate because in the story, Like smoke, one second he was there, then all of a sudden, three sentences later, he's gone. But the point here that I want to turn ourselves, uh, turn our attentions to, is Eve's exclamation when Cain was born in verse one: "I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord." Now, this is actually one of the more debated and ambiguous sentences in the Bible because the phrase that you see there in the ESV, "with the help." is not actually there in Hebrew, right? It's an interpretive choice made by the ESV translators. And with fear and trembling, I'm inclined to disagree with the ESV here. Because if we read all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 25, when God replaced the Abel, who eventually was killed with Seth, Eve said, God had appointed for me another son. So if you see the structure, the chapter begins and ends with the birth of a son, and it seems like the difference is that the first time Eve gives herself credit, but the last time, at the end of the chapter, Eve gives God credit, right? I have gotten a man versus the Lord appointed for me. 
So here's the point. It seems much more likely, to me at least, that Eve's exclamation here is not a celebration of divine assistance, but rather an indication of budding arrogance. Many scholars here actually make the case that Eve is comparing herself to Yahweh, where she's saying, I created, which is, you know, uh, what the word gotten here is literally translated to be. A man in comparison to Yahweh, like God created a man, so did I. I am like him. And therefore, if this is the case, this would mean that the narrative is again portraying Eve as an example of yet another human who uses her gifts to usurp God that has given her the gifts in the first place. A human who tries to bless themselves instead of giving glory to the giver. You see, the Bible is clear that indeed children are a blessing from God. But Eve is only the first of a whole host of mothers in the Bible who tries to attribute and achieve this divine blessing by their own wisdom and power, right? Think of Sarah, Leah, and Rachel just in the book of Genesis. Eve here is setting a pattern that we will see repeated continuously in the Bible. And furthermore, I think a good case can be made that Eve's arrogant cry here is because she thought that she produced the man that will save him. Remember what happened in the previous chapter. What is the great hope that God gave the humans to hold on to? Right? Genesis 3.15, God promised that there will be a descendant of the woman who will crush the evil serpent's head. So it seems like here, instead of waiting for God to bring this promised Savior, it appears here that Eve is presumptuously claiming that this is the one that will save us. This is the snake crusher, and he's here because of me. So I think what may have been lost in a lot of translation is how the Bible is teaching us that after the humans lost paradise and were kicked out of the garden. The decision to be like God, to define what is good and evil on our own terms, right? Remember, this is what convinced the humans to eat the fruit in the first place. This decision has tainted our nature to the point that we become delusional enough to believe that whatever blessings that we can enjoy was is because of our power. And that we actually have the power to get us out of the mess that we've created for ourselves. In other words, because we have seized the right to determine what is good, we think that we can bless ourselves and save ourselves, being able on our own to lay hold of the good. And Adam and Eve, friends, if we, we read the story of Genesis 1 and 2, certainly had this posture. And we've all inherited this from them, haven't we? We've all thought at some point, if I was able to have such and such amount of money, if I was able to have in this, uh, if I'm able to be in this position of authority, if I'm free to do this one thing, if I marry this one kind of person, then everyone will respect me then I will be happy, then I can solve all my problems. 
And we make it our life's mission to find, acquire, or achieve whatever it is that we believe can finally deliver us from the toils and troubles of a world that is clearly not paradise. Friends, this is a losing strategy. I feel like we say that here every week, but it's certainly worth repeating. Right? Money, authority, freedom, marriage, whatever it is, the things that we place our hope in are rarely inherently bad things. But they become bad for us and misleading to us when we fail to see that these are gifts in the end. We have them because God graciously gave them to us. And although these gifts are certainly enjoyable, these were never capable of being our salvation. Because what our fallen nature does, friends, that it refuses to acknowledge that whatever blessings we enjoy is actually from God. We want to pat ourselves on the back and tell ourselves that it was because of us. And this generates the audacity to believe that we can find salvation through our own power and this will be our downfall because we actually become stuck in this sort of vicious circle. If God does give us blessing, we become arrogant and we pat ourselves in the back because we think that it's through our wisdom and power that we have this blessing. But if we do not receive blessings, the blessings that we seek from our efforts, we are led down a road of envy and resentment. Because although in God's abundant generosity, He never completely stops blessing us, we will soon see in the text that the method and timing of God's favor and blessing is not like anything we could ever expect. When this happens, it can be a truly testing time when the reality of God's generosity subverts our expectations. Just point two. Our history of sin leads to a legacy of distorted perspectives. Okay, so we got through verse 1, and we're going to go a little faster here in verse 2 and following, I promise, because this is probably a story that's pretty well known by those of us who grew up as Christians. However, at least for me, this is one of the more mysterious stories in the Bible, because somehow, all of a sudden, they figured out that they could offer sacrifices to God. And if you're an Israelite, you would immediately know that there was only one appropriate venue to do that. The temple, right? And Hazar pointed out well last week that the Garden of Eden was the archetype of this temple. So the scene was that these brothers were offering sacrifices at the door of the Garden Temple, at the courtyard of the Garden Temple. And God in the story, preferred one sacrifice, able sacrifice, over the other. So the question is, right, why? There are clues in the text that gives us a hint of why. It says in verse 3 that Cain offered the fruits of the ground, right, which was what he produced as a farmer. But about Abel's offering, there was more detail, right? It's specified there that Abel chose the firstborn from his flock and from the fatty portions. The narrative describes it as like just as if Cain gave whatever he had, but Abel's offering is of such lavish 
value. There is selectivity and in intentionality that Cain's sacrifice just simply paled in comparison. Because not only were animals more valuable, the fact that it's from Abel's firstborn is also so significant because it means that Abel chose to give to God first and from the most prized parts. And if you think about it, right, it could be a risky business decision because if he ended up only having like two animals born this year, that means he gave God like 50% of his returns without knowing it. And this is perhaps why if you read uh, Hebrews, the author said, in chapter 11, that Abel gave a better offering by faith. Abel didn't give to God from what he had left over, but from what he got first. It's not about the amount, but it shows to hear that Abel had faith that there is enough because of God's faithfulness and generosity, that that will take care of him in the end. So, Part of it is certainly, and it's worth mentioning, that Abel's offering was better because God saw Abel's heart and that he had the right attitude behind his giving. However, what's perplexing to me is that the text doesn't actually indicate that there was anything wrong with Cain's offering. In fact, in the Torah, offerings of grain were perfectly legitimate and acceptable offerings. Check out Leviticus 2. It's all about that. So it wasn't because Cain did anything wrong or the ingredients of his offering was unacceptable, right? I would argue that Cain actually did a good thing too. So why didn't God show the same appreciation to Cain? Was God just being kind of mean in verse 5 when it said that he had no regard for Cain's offering? And I think what helped me here and a crucially important detail in the text is to see the fact that God didn't actually reject Cain's offering. Favoring Abel's offering is not unjust. It was better. But it doesn't necessarily con constitute a rejection of Cain. Although certainly Cain took it this way. In fact, in verse 7, seeing that Cain was so discouraged by the favor he showed to Abel, think about this. God actually invited Cain to dialogue and reassured him that this does not mean that he's excluded from all blessing. God, creator of heaven and earth, in no way owes Cain any explanation. He is, after all, the king who has all the authority. He could have been like, well, Cain, too bad. But God didn't do that. God stooped down to Cain's level and told him, if you do well, if you do good, will you not be accepted too? Or more literally, will there not also be lifting up for you if you do good? God is saying to Cain here, like, Cain, it's okay. <laughs> this is not forever. There is enough blessing for both of you. There's going to be another opportunity. Right? Chill. So God wasn't being mean at all. He justifiably celebrated the righteousness of Abel. And in fact, he was being open-handed to Cain. But you see, the problem is Cain had a sinfully 
limited perspective, a selfish perspective on the generosity that God happened to give his brother first. Cain saw how God's favor, how God had favor upon Abel, and then immediately jumped to conclusions. Oh, God must not like me. God must be biased towards my brother. There must be only a limited amount of favor they could give. God must not treat everyone equally. Instead of appreciating that God is still giving him a genuine opportunity and having the positive attitude of being like, great, there's another chance. Maybe I'll learn for Abel and then we both can be blessed. But because God's favor didn't come to Cain in the timing and method that was acceptable to him, Cain had envy that evolved into this violent, murderous rage that ultimately drove him to do the most foolish thing possible. Destroy the very image of God that he is seeking blessing from. There's nothing that could, have, that could be more counterproductive than that. Because he was deceived into believing that the only way to secure his blessing is to get rid of the competition. He completely misunderstood how God worked. Because in that culture, friends, also, Cain, as the firstborn, was actually the one who would have been expected to receive the greater blessing. The firstborn in that culture is actually entitled to a double portion, right? You can read this in uh, Leviticus. And Cain was the one who was supposed to be the favorite son because, in fact, he actually gave his offering first, right? Abel just kind of tagged along, like, ooh, Cain was giving an offering. Let me do one too. Yet this story is telling us simply that this is not how God works. God isn't bound by any cultural schema or assumption about how blessings are supposed to be dispensed. In fact, we see over and over in the Bible that God subverts and undermines the cultural expectations on who deserves blessings. That God, over and over again, elects the smallest, the most oppressed and rejected people, those who are least expected in that culture to be empowered, to be the ones who carry forward his intentions to bless all creation. God is a God who loves to empower and uplift the lowly and oppressed. Reiterating over and over again that in God's world, how God works is that favor, blessing, and honor in the true sense that can only come from God is something that can never be earned or seized, but is always meant to be given and received. And this is counterintuitive even for us, isn't it? Because this isn't how we experience the word working at all, right? The world seems to us like a meritocracy. Most of us hustle and grind every day for what we can enjoy. And I'm certain that most of us feel that we ourselves or our family have rightfully earned what we have. And I don't know about you, I can get pretty furious when something, uh, when someone doesn't give me something I'm owed or someone 
tries to take from me something that I believe is rightfully mine, right? Be it something as trivial as the right of way when driving to maybe something more important like money or respect. So angry even to the point where I feel like I really have to restrain myself from taking justice into my own hands. But maybe that's just me though. But what I am certain that all of us will experience at some point that there will be a point where our expectations of the favor and credit we should be receiving is not aligned with how God is currently dispensing favor in that particular moment. When we feel like we've done nothing wrong, and in fact, perhaps we've done everything, we we tried at least to do everything right, yet things have not gone our way. And it may even seem like God is giving favor to someone else who we might feel is less deserving of what we want. But remember, friends, when we reach what is a genuinely frustrating point, this could actually be a crossroads. It could actually be a point of testing that is meant to reveal whether or not we believe that God is trustworthy to bless us, even though we do not understand the method and timing of God's blessings. In other words, these moments, friends, are our moments under the tree, where we too are being tempted like our first parents in the garden to obey the voice of the beast, to use our own power and wisdom to secure the blessings that we think God is withholding from us. And this is what God was warning Cain about. On point three, our history of sin leads to a legacy of defeat to sin. Let's focus back here on verse seven. After God reassured Cain that there will be opportunities for him to be accepted too, God reminds him immediately that on the flip side, if he does not take his opportunity, there is a grave danger, right? This is the first time, actually, that the word sin, moral failure, shows up in the Bible. And quite interestingly, right, sin is not described as a single action or a pattern of behavior. But what we're given is actually an image. It says sin is crouching at the door. Sin here, interestingly, is made, up, uh, uh, is made out to be some kind of vicious animal, this hungry predator that's crouching. This is what lions and tigers uh, do in the bushes as it waits for a vulnerable time to strike and consume its prey. This is how sin is out to get us as we fail our test. It lurks in the corner. And what's also interesting here that the language used here in verse 7 with the crouching at the door is almost a copy and paste of the language that's used to describe how marriage relations will break down under the curse of sin back in Genesis 3.16. That somehow the power struggle that happens in a broken marriage relationship between the husband and wife will be analogous to the power struggle between humans and sin. And I think the point here is that when we sin, it's it's not over. 
But this sin takes on a life of its own. It becomes this power that continuously tries to impose its will upon us. It becomes this presence in our lives that tries to take over. And we've all either witnessed or experienced this, haven't we? When we stubbornly resist to repent from our sin, it always seems to pull us deeper and deeper into sin. In the case of Cain, he went from envy to anger to murder. For David, it went from neglecting his duty as king by staying home when his army's at war to coveting someone else's wife to killing her husband to cover it up. For Paul, it went from being a self-righteous Pharisee to being an accomplice to the murder of an innocent man. Not even the greatest heroes of the Bible is immune to this. So how did it work for you in your sin? It's never just this one last time, isn't it? It always leads to something else. It always demands more from us. And before we know it, we're doing something we never thought we were capable of. And as we continue to sin, we feel less and less guilty about it, eventually normalizing our sin and even getting to the point where we can't see ourselves being happy without our sin. It's such a slippery slope, isn't it? That's why God advises Cain that he must rule over this sin, this moral failure that's hiding and just around the corner before it consumes him. And implicit in this advice, friends, and what we must, uh, might miss is that we can actually overcome and rule over it. The reason why God describes sins as an animal is because uh, it's not only to highlight its danger, but also to remind us what the human relationship, what Cain's relationship as an image of God, the sin should be. Humans were called to rule the animal. We are supposed to be its rulers. Sin, like animals, isn't supposed to be something that we ever needed to be afraid of, something that was a threat to us. Therefore, it is completely unfit and unbecoming of an image of God to be ruled and consumed by sin. Yet Cain, as we all have, if we're honest, at some point, failed to overcome the beast. We were negligent to its crouching. It pounced on us. And now we find ourselves with sin having power over us. And we can't stop sinning, no matter how hard we try. We are a slave to sin, right? Paul says, and in Romans 7, he describes it so honestly and beautifully. As we do not understand our actions, we do not do the good that we want to do, but the evil that we do not want is what we keep on doing. This endless struggle, this endless cycle, this is the condition that we find ourselves in because we keep on feeding the beast. We keep on failing to trust God and we keep on insisting on finding the blessing on our own, like what the first humans have been doing 
since the beginning. So what hope is there for us, friends? Because not only are we now victims of the violent, intensive sin, like Cain, we are also guilty of sin. Hopefully, none of us are like Cain and have actually literally murdered someone. But Jesus said that even if we hate another person, we're already of guilty of murder in our hearts. Who hasn't done that? Who here has never left any proverbial dead bodies in their wake? Someone has been hurt by our selfishness. Some relationship out there is broken because of our urges. And all the harm that we've done because of our sin, just like the blood of Abel in verse 10, is calling out to God for justice. But this is why the story of Jesus is indeed good news for us. Because Jesus, friends, is the only truly righteous one who, though he was in the form of God, never thought that his high, exalted position is something that he needed to grasp. It wasn't something that he needed to boast in or be protective of. In fact, he willingly gave it up for us and became human so that he can obey the Father. Yet unlike us, Jesus was able to resist every temptation. He was able to dodge every attempt of the beast of sin to consume him. And although he deserved all the favor and exaltation, he rather willingly trusted in God's faithfulness when he took the human responsibility, the responsibility for humanity's whole history of sin on himself on the cross. Friends, Jesus Christ is the true and better able, the righteous one who was killed. Jesus Christ was the one who offered the perfect and lasting sacrifice, sacrifice of his own body. And as we read and as we heard in our assurance of pardon, his blood, his sacrifice, speaks a better testimony than the blood of Abel because it does not cry out to God for our judgment, but it cries out to God to declare that justice has already been served, that he's already defeated the beast, and our failures is now already covered by him. So friends, if right now you feel in your life that the beast is lurking and you still find yourself helplessly failing against sin. You feel so broken because you can't see a way out. You can't see how you can ever stop. The Bible is telling you, stop relying on yourself. Renounce your sin and come as you are, imperfect as you are before Jesus because you're not too far gone. There is still hope for each and every one of us. Jesus, because he gave the gift of his life, has won for us against the beast. And he can heal us and he wants to set us free. So will you let him be Lord of your life and let him? Friends, because of the human race's history of sin, 
we find ourselves with this wretched inheritance, an arrogance that made us delusional, an entitlement that distorts our perspective, and a weakness that makes us prone to defeat. But praise be to God, because Jesus gave us the gift of his life, we have a new inheritance, the one that Jesus will share with us in glory. So we don't need to worry about getting the blessings on our own. We can trust God because we know that the true blessing has already been given to us by Christ. And the beast can never take that away from us. Amen? Blessed are you, Lord, King of the universe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are in awe of your mercy, of how you allow us imperfect, jealous, envious people to come to you so that we may receive your blessings. Lord, what you give to us is not because of our merit, but you give it to us freely. Help us acknowledge that. Humble our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we may rely on you and we may rest on the blessings that you generously give us. We know, Father, that you give us actually more than we can ever ask and expect. Give us a heart of gratefulness and give us a heart that sees your Son, that sees that in him we have every blessing that we can come to you freely without guilt. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.